You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. We're delighted today to be joined by Dr. Krishna Udaya Kumar, Director of the Duke Global Health Innovation Center. Welcome, Krishna, and thanks so much for making time to be with us today. Thank you, Steve. Great to be with you. We had the good fortune in the, in the last several weeks of collaborating with Krishna. He took the lead, and we're very grateful for the leadership that he took in pulling together two open letters that brought in a number of different institutions. One was May 17th, which was really addressed to the administration, to the Biden administration, calling for urgent high-level U.S. leadership, and that involved these four partner institutions, the Duke Global Health Innovation Center, along with some other colleagues at Duke, ourselves at CSIS, the COVID Collaborative with Gary Edson, and the Center for Global Development with Amanda Glassman and her colleagues. A second letter was put out, again with Krishna's leadership, June 7th, open letter to G7 leaders. And we'll be talking from some of the argumentation contained in that. But I think those, those letters, to me, brought home yet again, the degree to which we are in the midst of this pandemic facing this age of vaccine drama, which is fast moving. The scale involved is is difficult to sort of get your mind around. It's a very chaotic and untransparent, often quite secretive marketplace. It's dramatic in bringing forward expressions of pretty strong nationalism and geopolitical muscle. It's appealing to folks to there are better senses in terms of ethics and morality. There's the COVAX uh, solidarity facility. Industry is playing a huge role. There are big bets with huge consequences. This is going to change industry practice, science. It's going to change wealth. And of course, now we have variants fully upon us, which have entered this formula as well. Before we get into some of the details, Krishna, I, I, it would be helpful for you to describe sort of who you are and what you do. I mean, you came to our attention because you were working so assiduously at trying to describe for the world what was happening in this phase when lots of different vaccine developers were getting in the game, they were going through clinical trials, they were getting approvals, they were beginning to put forward early deals, late deals, beginning the manufacturing production process. This was a a picture that was very hard to make sense of. And as we said, it's a marketplace that's oftentimes quite opaque and untransparent. And you were out there trying to sort of bring some sense and understanding of what was going on. So tell us about what you do and tell us how you got into this game and how did you go about trying to make sense of this marketplace? Sure. No, thank you for that context. This has really been a 10-year plus journey that we've been on that's landed as here looking at COVID vaccines. We really started out with a great interest in trying to understand the role of innovation and entrepreneurship in solving critical global health challenges which made us automatically look at what the role of the private sector really should be and how the public and private sectors can work collaboratively together. So going back 10 years, we started these conversations through the World Economic Forum and working with other partners and launched just about 10 years ago, a nonprofit that's called Innovations in Healthcare, jointly across Duke, McKinsey and Company, the consulting firm, as well as the World Economic Forum to become a bit of a platform by which we could curate the very best of health and healthcare innovations that we were seeing, especially in low resource settings in low and middle income countries 
because we were becoming more and more convinced that the most transformative or creative solutions were coming out of these really resource-constrained settings that was driving creativity. But there was no real marketplace for that type of innovation to take hold to get visibility. So that's what we set out to create is, uh, in essence, the Industry Association for Disruptive Innovators in Health and Healthcare. And as that grew over time, what we also started to see was that there were academic opportunities to strengthen the evidence base, understand the policy environment, to be able to build capacity through education and training. So in parallel, several years ago, we created the Global Health Innovation Center. So now we've got an academic home to really better create the evidence base of what's working and what's not in taking innovation to scale, understanding the health systems and policy environment, and hopefully training the next generation of change agents and health leaders to actually drive innovation forward. And in parallel, we've got this nonprofit now that has a network of 104 social enterprises operating in almost 100 countries. So we've really got the pulse of what the cutting edge of innovation looks like on one hand and the ability to strengthen and move the field forward on the other. And that for us is an exciting place to be where we think we can have real impact. And and from there, it became really natural to look at what was happening in the early days of the global response to the COVID-19 pandemic especially the massive investments into innovation, including new vaccines, all of the market failures that were happening in real time. And we wanted to see if we can apply some of the tools and learnings from this past decade to try to bring more transparency and see if we could create a bit more efficiency in this market. So as you began diving in during the pandemic with a special focus upon the vaccine developers, you had a ready-made set of relationships that gave you some access to be able to to hear from them on what they were doing. I mean, the there was a proliferation of countless deals. Most of them were confidential. Some of them were advertised. And there was a lot of rumors. There were a lot of claims in the press that proved to be inaccurate. But you seem to be pretty successful at being able to sort of gather together the best estimates of what was going on and encapsulate that in a way. What was it that came out of this 10-year effort that enabled you to be able to operate in that fashion? I think it was a few things together. One certainly were the relationships with both the public and the private sector, that there was trust that information could be provided, that it would be used in responsible ways. Two was, I think, the the idea that we were based at an academic institution and doing this very translational or applied work allowed us to uh, to act in some ways as a trusted third party amongst lots of different stakeholders. And three, we were a couple of years into a program called the Launch and Scale Speedometer, where we had worked specifically to create a data framework, a database to track the introduction and scale up of innovations around the world. So we even had a ready-made platform onto which to overlay all this information. And one of the things that we decided on very early was that to bring transparency, we were going to try to make as much of our data publicly available as possible. So we only reported data that was in the public domain and where people wanted to share private data with us on vaccine procurement or sales or projections. Uh, we said, that's fine, so long as you're okay with us putting that into the public domain. Early on, we didn't get a lot of takers, but as this data set and the visualization tools around it started to become one of the go-to resources. We had manufacturers calling us. We had countries calling us to update us on deals or to correct it. And and we've approached this very much as a work in progress, right? This is uh, not exhaustive. It's never going to be exactly right, but it's the best information based on everything in the public domain. And we love when people call us up and correct us because we want to make this as accurate as possible. So you became a trusted sort of public clearinghouse and how does what you're doing compare with some of the other groups that are trying to track 
globally what's happening in the various vaccine races underway. Yeah, I think when I look at the life cycle of vaccines, normally you talk about manufacturing and supply and then purchases and then deliveries and actual implementation. Given the massive response in the pandemic, this switched the order a little bit because, as you noted, we were seeing purchases way before there was a product on the market. So the first purchase that we looked at was really from May of 2020. And we know that the first vaccines weren't available till many months beyond that. So we started to document quickly what was happening in terms of advanced purchases of vaccines, often with purchases being made at risk, and then moving to what the supply projections might look like, what were happening in terms of regulatory authorizations. So if you can put those pieces together and then go to some other independent data sets around the implementation of vaccinations, you could get a much clearer picture to say, what's happening in terms of sales? How does that match up with supply over time? Are these vaccines actually authorized in different countries? And then who's actually getting them? So very early, going back to November of 2020, we started to raise this red flag to say every trend line we're seeing are at odds with the rhetoric around global access and equity. We are starting to see significant divergence from equity just based on early purchases with a hope that there would be some interventions put in place to to remedy that lack of equity. And what we've seen, in fact, is it's just worsened over time. So just in terms of the episodes that we've gone through most of 2020 until we got to the last quarter, there were deals being done as in the Operation Warp Speed and other deals to de-risk and to invest and get develop, make big bets on developers. And the developers were out there busy doing the field, developing and putting through field trials, their products. We didn't really know what the outcomes were. Those outcomes became more apparent as we were closing into the end of the of 2020 And at that point, the reality of the glaring gap between the wealthy countries and low and lower middle income countries became pretty starkly apparent. Is that what you're saying? That's right. And all of these inequities were being baked in in the early days, as you said, whether it was Operation Warp Speed or other mechanisms that were bringing massive public and private capital into the mix, they often were coupled to early access or other mechanisms that frankly, led to high-income countries having almost all of the early access to vaccines if and when they were ever going to be proven effective and safe. So by the time we started paying attention uh, at the end of 2020, there were already six months of deals that had been made that baked in a lot of the inequities that we're seeing now. And as you were turning your attention to the to the global vaccine setting and trying to make sense of it all and trying to track it, what was the greatest barrier to your efforts? in 2020, and then we can talk about today, but in that early, in those early phases, what was the biggest barrier you faced? Yeah, for us, it was very much a fragmentation of data. Um, Steve, as you noted earlier, most of the deals that were made were proprietary in nature, contained terms that were not transparent, often reflected the power dynamics of having manufacturers that had power over scarce supply. Uh, So it was really difficult to understand exactly what was going on, which is why we created this data set to start with and released it very much to try to get others to add to it and to try to get a collective effort going whereby we could create more transparency in the marketplace. Because it was clear there were market failures along the way and that efforts like COVAX and the ACT Accelerator, while well-intentioned, were not having anywhere near the impact that we had all hoped that they would. As you're looking back now, mid-June 2021, do you feel like you were able to 
succeed in creating more transparency? Do you feel that you were a success? I think modestly so. Starting in November of 2020 or so, we were able to help really drive the conversation to an extent to show what was happening in terms of a lack of equity, in terms of a breakdown, in terms of the the rhetoric of supporting COVAX and multilateral approaches, while the same countries that were saying those things were out trying to buy as many vaccine doses as they possibly could through direct bilateral agreements. So we were able to at least highlight the challenges that the world was facing at a relatively early point before vaccines really came on the market. We've seen now efforts over the last six months to try to remedy those a bit. But I'd say in the same way that our pandemic response mechanisms weren't really fit for purpose, our ability to track and report information also was very much made up on the fly as we looked at what was happening. And do you believe that within the U.S. government and within other powerful governments that there's accurate and up-to-date and pretty comprehensive tracking of what's going on in the marketplace? I think much more so within the U.S. administration because of the relationships and the access through Operation Warp Speed and and now the COVID-19 task force directly out of the White House. I think there's a, a very deep understanding of what's happening in terms of supply chains that limited to manufacturers that are either based in the U.S. or that are looking at U.S. markets. So that's not a global perspective. I think most other countries are struggling and especially low and middle income countries because we've had country governments reach out to us for advice. We've seen public reporting that the ability to negotiate with manufacturers has been challenging because of those power dynamics, because of the the liability protections and indemnification that's been required to get access to vaccines. So it's fair to say that the most wealthy and most powerful countries have dominated, but also the the most wealthy and globalized of the vaccine developers in the private sector have also dominated in those periods. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's happened. And I think you've seen this play out in in BioNTech, for example, having been the, the creator of the actual IP of the vaccine, but needing a partner like Pfizer to actually commercialize and bring manufacturing to scale or Oxford University creating the IP around the Oxford developed vaccine, but needing a partner like AstraZeneca to think about commercialization and scale. So we're hopeful that Part of the learnings that are going to come out of this experience is really a a better understanding of pathways to to taking innovation to scale, especially what's working and what's not working. Yeah. Say a few words about what you've observed in terms of the horse race among the major Western developers. We've seen a lot of twists and turns in the storyline. We've seen some stumbles. We've I mean, we had the commitment made just last week by the Biden administration to purchase 500 million doses of Pfizer. I'm not sure we would have predicted Pfizer would have been the choice six months ago if we were saying at this particular moment in time as the U.S. is feeling pressure, but also reaching a point of greater confidence domestically that they would have chosen this. But, you know, high hopes for AstraZeneca, very high hopes, obviously, Moderna and Pfizer, J&J. Say a bit about how that race has evolved over time. Yeah, it has had its share of surprises. One, that some of the vaccine developers uh, that have been powerhouses over time, GSK, Merck, for example, don't have a product on the market and have had candidates that have not succeeded so far. GSK with Sanofi is likely to, to move forward with a candidate, but very late in the game relative to some of the others. And on the flip side, the absolute surprise of mRNA 
based platforms coming through before any of the others. And there's, of course, a decade of research and development that's gone in. So it wasn't all done within a year, but it was a pretty massive bet to move that platform forward. And even as the Pfizer-BioNTech and the Moderna vaccine started to show promise in clinical trials, the manufacturing um, was totally unknown. And the mRNA platforms have very different manufacturing needs than some of the others. And it's been amazing how quickly they have ramped those up. They have met and exceeded their manufacturing projections consistently after some early learning curves. Most of the other platforms have not, on the other hand. So AstraZeneca and Oxford is the vaccine that, frankly, most of the world, and especially the low and middle income countries, bet on. It had three billion doses of capacity as initially considered by the end of 2021. That's been knocked down considerably. It had a decentralized model of licensing um, manufacturing across the world, not just to the Serum Institute in India, but also in Thailand and Mexico and Brazil and Argentina. Most of those have really had challenges in scaling up. And we've seen even in the U.S. Um, the challenges with the emergent facility that uh, that hasn't worked out and that's put manufacturing of both AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson at risk. So we've had some early winners that we wouldn't have predicted from the mRNA side. We've had some early companies that have been challenged that are also surprising. But to me, overall, the science has completely over-delivered anything we could possibly expect that within a year of identification of the pathogen, we had multiple safe and effective vaccines and the ability to scale up manufacturing in massive ways that we've never had in the history of, of uh, pandemic response. And across several different models of vaccines, mm -hmm. the success rate has been high ac across these different ones. What, what do you think the hard lessons are for AstraZeneca? Gosh, I think there are many. They're not traditionally this uh, vaccine powerhouse to start with. So being able to, to have that uh, manufacturing expertise in-house, I think we've seen is important, you know, with the viral vector vaccines like AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson. I think we've seen manufacturing challenges that are very dependent on the facility that perhaps is much more so than some of the others. The decentralized models, I think we're going to learn, require a really substantial investment, not just of financial capital, but human capital. The training, the, the knowledge transfer is perhaps much more onerous than we thought it might be just to hand over license to a technology and hope others could manufacture it. I think the other lesson learned is that our global supply chains are not nearly as resilient as we had hoped, that some of the supplies that we would otherwise think about as commodities have become the true bottlenecks. In the manufacturing process itself. Exactly. So what we've seen are things like bioreactor bags or filters really hold up the manufacturing scale up of some of these vaccine platforms. And there is not a clear business model by which those can be maintained at the scale that we might need for pandemic response. So one of the things we have to think about for future pandemic response is really this idea of what does an ever warm network of manufacturing capacity and the supply chain to support it look like? And who's going to put probably billions of dollars a year on the table to maintain it as part of our future preparedness? There was a big story today about Novavax, its clinical trial results that it's going to come forward with a request for emergency use authorization, and we're likely to see it come online later in the summer and into the fall. What's the implications of Novavax's arrival, do you think? I think it's great news. It's a vaccine and a platform that we had been counting on for some time. The clinical trial results are now promising in two trials, including the latest one in the U.S. and, and Mexico. The manufacturing 
has also been delayed relative to uh, what previously was projected. So the hope is that by the end of the third quarter in this year, they'll be really ramping up and perhaps at 100 to 150 million doses a month by the fourth quarter of the year. It's another highly scalable platform that now has evidence of efficacy as well as safety, including efficacy against some of the more recent variants. So I think all of that is fantastic news. We need diversity and we need resilience in our vaccine supply chain moving forward. You've done some forecasting. We built some of the forecasts into the June 7th open letter that we worked on. Give us the big picture. What are we going to look like at the end of calendar year 2021? What's in store for calendar year 2022? As you look at the existing agreements and plans, production forecasts for these major these major products. Yeah, some good news on the supply side here that all of the capital investments that have been made over the past year are now starting to pay off. And the fact that we have multiple candidates that have proven to be safe and effective, and we continue to have a strong pipeline with several other candidates in phase three trials are all good news on the supply side. If you look at the vaccines that either currently are authorized by a G7 country, by a stringent regulatory authority, or are likely to be. The two likely to be uh, would include Novavax with the recent clinical trial data, as well as CureVac, which is a German company that is producing an mRNA-based vaccine. With those, we think that the production by the end of 2021 could be somewhere in the ballpark of 7 billion doses. And for all of 2022, could actually be double that. So 14 billion plus doses of high quality, well-regulated vaccines. That is in addition to all of the other uh, vaccines that are currently in the pipeline, some of which I suspect will also come on the market. And of course, we haven't taken into consideration the, the availability or use of vaccines developed in China or Russia in that calculation. So the big picture to me is that over the next three to six months, global supply will be constrained. So we have to be um, that much more responsible in our allocation and, and vaccination efforts. But looking toward the end of this year and into next year, it's very likely that distribution and demand are going to be the key constraints in almost every country to scaling up vaccinations. So they, we're heading into a phase of abundance it then becomes the question of getting the supply allocated, financed, delivered to those low and middle income countries, which are going to be the key to getting ultimately ar arresting the pandemic, where the target is to try and reach 60% of that population, which is going to require something on the order of how many billion doses per year? Yeah, there are a lot of variables here. Just to assuming that almost every vaccine is two doses and we're going to try to get to uh, something like 70% population coverage that would lend itself to a ballpark of about 11 billion doses that would be needed. Now, we don't know if there will be new variants of concern that pierce the immunity of our current vaccines and will need new types of boosters. We don't know if the duration of immunity with any of these vaccines or subpopulations are such that we'll need to have regular boosters on a seasonal basis. So on one end, best case scenario is about 11 billion doses and we're done. I think that's very unlikely. On the other end of the scenario was that we will have something like annual boosters for a significant part of the global population over a period of years and or the need for adapted boosters because of new variants that emerge. So we could be looking at tens of billions of doses that are needed and that uh, that's going to put enormous 
strain on the financing, but really also on the delivery systems to make the to turn those vaccines into vaccinations. So this is going to be pretty expensive, right? Just before the G7 summit, the leaders of the World Bank, IMF, WTO, WHO all came out saying the requirements of in the next 18 months, if you're looking at getting baseline coverage in low and middle income countries, we're looking at a price tag of $50 billion. Other scenarios are higher. Other projections are higher. So there is a big financing gap at the moment, right? That's exactly right. And it will likely be at least $50 billion that are necessary both to procure, distribute vaccines, but also make sure the vaccination campaigns are there to build the workforce, to create the training, the supply chain, distribution channels, everything else that is going to be required. And added on top of that are going to be all of the uh, assistance we have to provide in terms of shoring up fragile health systems or providing acute humanitarian assistance, as we've seen become necessary in India over the past few months that we saw in Brazil prior to that, that unfortunately is starting to unfold in several countries across Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia now. So $50 billion is a lot of money, but the modeling would show that it can result, if done well, in trillions of dollars of added economic activity over the coming year. So there's a very strong return on investment, whether you look at it purely from a financial perspective or you take the humanitarian and, and health considerations into view. So we, with India and elsewhere, we're seeing this in South America, we're seeing it in South Asia, uh, neighboring states to India. You can have a runaway variant-stoked second or third wave. You can have the accompanying cascade of humanitarian and economic crises. You can have social instability pulled into there. And then you have this outstanding and rising concern as to once these vaccines begin to arrive at the door of low and lower middle income countries that most need them, will they have the delivery capacity in place? Or are we going to have bottlenecks, spoilage, huge delays? Have we really gotten our minds around that dimension of what's going to be required? Unfortunately, I think we're headed perhaps into the most difficult period because of those challenges. As we saw in many high-income countries, including the U.S., the science was really hard to get to vaccines, but the delivery components of, of implementing vaccines into vaccinations has been just as difficult, if not more so. If we're really trying to target 60 to 70 percent population coverage, almost no country has achieved that, even Israel, that has a small contained population, access uh, to all the supply in the world, financing that's more than adequate, because demand side factors are going to prevent, frankly, most countries from reaching that threshold. If you look at the World Bank report on the first assessment and lessons learned in terms of country readiness, we're not anywhere near where we need to be. Hopefully some progress has been made over the last four months since that data was used. But I don't think there are very many countries around the world that are really ready for mass vaccinations in adult populations. So we are unfortunately, I predict, going to see many countries mired in the 20 to 40 percent coverage range while we have hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines in supply available. Uh, so we really do have to invest much more urgently in creating the delivery capacity and in addressing the, the demand factors, including hesitancy, misinformation, and disinformation. And addressing a workforce, a sort of baseline workforce that's been fragmented and depleted and demoralized in so many settings. 
and how do we reboot that workforce? How do we remotivate? How do we get them integrated together um, in so many of these countries where it's really a huge, a huge problem? If we can go back just one moment to the, the, the race and the major, the major developers that the U.S. put its big bets on, in that group, there are no developers of what you might think of as the more traditional and familiar inactivated vaccines. Why do you think that decision was taken? In the case of Operation Warp Speed, to to basically not go down that path, which would have been perhaps a more predictable set of outcomes, more familiar set of challenges on both the development and the manufacturing. Yeah, the best read I can make is that there was a pretty diverse set of investments that were made. And because there was a lot of work that had already been done in early stage vaccine development, especially supported over the last four to five years by CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, I think there was some optimism that new platforms like mRNA might be useful. It really wasn't starting from scratch. And there was work already being done on on supporting vaccines against coronavirus, broadly defined previously that that this was being built on. And uh, investments really came across the board, including the mRNA platform with, with Moderna largely in advanced purchases from Pfizer, but also uh, looking at Novavax, uh, Johnson & Johnson, several others. So there were multiple platforms, at least, including the viral vectors and the protein subunit. And we really haven't seen with the inactivated uh, virus platforms, as you pointed out, as much movement in getting those to market as quickly. So we just had the the G7 summit, they concluded with, a, with new commitments of 613 million doses that will be new doses donated to low and lower middle income countries, mostly through COVAX facility. The U.S. accounts for 500 million of those 613. The Brits came in with 100 million, the Canadians with 13. If you add in some of the commitments made by the EU and other G7 states in the previous few weeks, you get to about 870. There was a lot of rounding going on at, in the press conferences and the press releases to say this this got us to a billion. Others in the White House itself have started counting things and saying that they're even over two billion. But setting that aside for a moment, President Biden stepped forward, his closing press conference, pretty significant set of statements about U.S. leadership and the priority of this and the commitment to stay in the game for the next several years. The suggestion that another billion in, in contributed doses was probably likely over the next two years. What do you make of this? We know that some people applauded this and said this was a major breakthrough. Others like Gordon Brown saying that this was a failure and only a fraction of what's required. What's your view? What, what, how, do you, how are you looking at these outcomes from the G7? Yeah, I'll say as an amateur watcher of the G7, it seemed very much like a mixed bag. The positive most certainly was that the need to address vaccinations was very high on the agenda of the G7. Hugely positive that President Biden stepped up and staked his leadership, American leadership, on continuing to stay engaged. This wasn't passing off responsibility to anybody else. The challenging part was, of course, there's much more to be done more urgently uh, than almost they could have um, put any numbers behind. And and setting aside what started to become more and more creative math by the hour, uh, you know, getting hundreds of millions more doses out to low and middle income countries is good. I think as the supply chain ramps up and we start to see that countries are reaching whatever the demand might be in their own domestic markets, I'm hopeful that we will start to see more and more supply diverted to the needs of low and middle income countries more quickly. There was not enough emphasis, I think, on strengthening 
country readiness, distribution, and demand generation, those may not become constraints for three, four, or five months from now, but they will, without a doubt, be the major constraints to reaching vaccination rates around the world that help end the acute phase of the pandemic. So uh, President Biden said America is back. Certainly, the U.S. took a leadership role in in moving the G7 in this direction. There is more to be done, but we're nowhere near the end of the story. So I remain optimistic that we'll make progress here. I'm happy to hear that. It became clear that the U.S. was leaning a lot farther forward than the other parts of the G7, right? I mean, 13 million commitment from Canada suggests the Canadians are not quite there yet, even though they've overpurchased or pre-purchased massive volumes, but their own vaccination efforts are not that far along quite yet. The EU made 100 million commitment during its May 21st health summit, didn't go beyond that. And, uh, you know, from the individual countries in Europe, not a whole lot more. I mean, it, it, it was in Japan as well. So I think that, again, the U.S. is looking like it's going to pull a lot of weight in the next couple of years on this. And if they can get a matching, a matching commitment from the other wealthy states, that'll be successful. But it's going to be, I think, a hard uh, in a hard slog. And one of my takeaways is that I'm very pleased that President Biden stepped forward in the way he did. I was very pleased that had 500 million commitment and the suggestion that another billion is coming forward. But this is going to be a lot like HIV AIDS in the age of PEPFAR and the Global Fund. We're going to carry an enormous share, I think, of the response. And what does that mean going to mean? We haven't really begun to look at it yet. Let's talk about Russia and China. What's Russia got to contribute here with the Sputnik V? They don't have a lot of cash. Putin's got all sorts of reputational problems, including clandestine campaigns against Western vaccines, which are well documented and persistent. But he's got a good vaccine, but he doesn't have much in the way of production capacities or cash to give it away. What 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 can we expect from the Russians in the next year or two? Yeah, I think you put it exactly right that the science seems to be pretty good behind the Sputnik V vaccine from what we've seen so far. But again, there's much more to be desired in terms of transparency in the data and in the the regulatory review and oversight of this particular vaccine. Russia seems to have very little in the way of high quality manufacturing capacity. So while the Sputnik V was developed in Russia, most of the manufacturing they're relying on is going to be much more distributed around the world. They did come out of the gates very much with a lens on vaccine diplomacy, especially trying to play in the Americas and making deals to provide access to a lot of countries across Latin America at a time when they were struggling to get Uh, Western developed vaccines. Most of that hasn't panned out in terms of volume that's really material. We know that there are at least three countries that have um, rejected vaccines that have been exported from Russia for a a lack of high quality manufacturing and safety reasons. So beyond the actual vaccine that they've developed, I I think there's going to be not much that that Russia is going to provide in terms of manufacturing or, or exports over uh, the coming year or two from from what I've seen so far. So they're likely to be a, remain, at least for the near to medium term, as a modest factor in the in the bigger global picture. I think so. And they've got absolutely. And I think they've got their own challenges domestically where there's a very high rate of vaccine hesitancy. So they've they've got work to do with vaccinating their own population and their own population, uh, according to recent polls, is quite well aware of what the competing vaccine options look like in are much more in favor of going with a Moderna or Pfizer than going with Sputnik V. 
um, which is right. which is another interesting sort of reflection of the distrust and skepticism that exists within Russian society. What about China? I mean, they Chinese have got a couple of reasonably good vaccines. They've had some some problems, and they've got their own kind of tensions between what do they do in the external marketplace versus what are they going to do for in vaccinating their own population? And they have been very aggressive at building out on the on the Belt and Road Initiative to make this a very conspicuous element of their vaccine diplomacy. They've made big promises, what, over 700 million doses this year to some of their partner states. How do you, how do you rate them? Are, they, are these credible? Are they going to be a major force in the world as we look out in the next two years, three years? Yeah, I think China is very much on the other end of the spectrum. Right? They have very quickly become a massive workhorse of vaccine development as well as manufacturing we were tracking about four vaccines that were developed. It may be as many as seven domestically developed vaccines that are now authorized in some form for use domestically in China. They have um, done more than 800 million vaccinations uh, domestically. More than 600 million people in, in China have received at least the, the first dose of vaccine at this point. They are vaccinating at massive scale of 15 to 20 million people a day. Uh, so they've really turned on the the full force of the country in developing, manufacturing, and implementing uh, vaccines at a scale that nobody else has been able to match so far. The question, of course, remains, uh, one, how good are the vaccines? Two of them, Sinopharm and Sinovac, have been authorized through emergency use listing by the World Health Organization. I think that's an important milestone. None of them have been reviewed by a stringent regulatory authority to date, uh, but they may well become part of the portfolio that COVAX purchases going forward now that they have EUL from the WHO as a, as a requisite for going through COVAX. We've seen some real-world data in um, places like Chile that had high rates of vaccination, largely with the Chinese vaccine, that seemed to show very little efficacy or effectiveness with one dose and reasonable effectiveness with two doses. We've seen in places like the UAE and Bahrain that they have started to offer pretty consistently a third dose or a booster from one of the other platforms, even after two doses of of some of the Chinese vaccine. So there's still, I think, some questions both about the effectiveness over time of the vaccines, as well as how the Chinese may deploy access to these vaccines as part of their broader Belt and Road Initiative and, and global vaccine diplomacy. Well, you know, the American policymakers up to the president, but including the Secretary of State and, and many others, Gail Smith as the coordinator at the State Department, they've, they've got this common talking point trying to di differentiate the United States and, and the other G7 donors as operating on a more principled basis in their vaccine diplomacy, that there's no, there's no conditionalities, there's no political ambitions. So the implication being that, that we're virt more virtuous than the Chinese in the way we go about doing our business. Do you think that's accurate? I think there's some component to that for sure. We've seen, I think, the prioritization of access to some of these Chinese vaccines very much um, driven by geopolitical concerns, not necessarily the greatest need from the U.S., it, that's great rhetoric. We now have to back it up and show how we're making doses available transparently. I think the really big question we should come back to in 12 to 18 months is whether the world is largely vaccinating using vaccines developed in the U.S. and Europe, or is it the Chinese 
vaccines that are largely vaccinating low and middle income countries. I think that is the major question that may have implications for geopolitics for the coming decade or longer. Don't you think there's a lot of low low and lower middle income countries that have been sitting there over the last year and a half thinking, um, okay, uh, my place in the world is, is not, not very advantaged. We need to get to 60 to 70%. It's not clear what that pathway is going to be. COVAX comes along and says, you know, in time, we think we can help you up to 20% of your requirements with some subsidization coming in, but you're going to have to be very patient. And in fact, they've they've had to be even more patient than they thought they were going to have to be waiting around for COVAX. Then you have the Chinese show up and make some offers, and maybe you have the Russians come in, and, and the Indians themselves are out marketing some of their stuff that's been suspended during the current crisis. But it's a bit of a casino, it seems to me, with these countries trying to figure out what's the combination that they're going to knit together of vaccine sources in order to get to a 60 or 70% goal when they don't have a lot of cash in their pocket, they don't have a lot of influence or sway. And so maybe the outcome that you, that we're going to see is a mosaic of Western uh, vaccines coming in through donations, through COVAX, through Africa CDC, perhaps some bilateral deal making. But that doesn't necessarily rule out that these are going to be supplemented with Chinese vaccines and the like. We could see a patchwork or a mosaic. What do you think of that? I think you're right that we will see, and we're already starting to see, right, combinations occur. So several countries that started off with Chinese vaccines because those are the only ones they could access now as supply is opening up is offering boosters, especially with the mRNA platform vaccines. And that may be something that we move to over time, especially as we deal with variants, is uh, a bit of a mix and match approach, uh, not just in low and middle income countries. We have some interesting data coming out about mixing AstraZeneca with, with Pfizer-BioNTech that seems to um, be quite positive so far. So it's not clear what exactly is going to play out. The Chinese vaccines, at least from publicly available information, seem to be some of the most expensive vaccines in the world as well uh, per dose. Uh, so there's not necessarily a price advantage. It's more availability in the short term that's been the selling point so far, plus some um, potential financing support, largely through debt, from China to go along with it, as we've seen with some um, some development efforts from China in places like Sub-Saharan Africa over the past decade or so. There very much, I think, is a, is an opening for whoever, which consortium is really going uh, to step in and and do the right thing at scale. And that's where I think the G7 at least has their foot in the door very much with strong U.S. leadership. But we're going to need to see much more if that's the model for how the world gets vaccinated. And I also wonder, you know, in this question around China versus the West on the vaccine race, is it going to remain in this kind of bifurcated fashion? Or are there going to be some, some methods of collaboration and integration of effort? I mean, the fact that the United States and others have come in so big now in support of both with cash and with donations of COVAX. It makes me wonder whether the Chinese are, are likely to come into COVAX in any serious way. They've stayed away from most multilateral initiatives dominated by the West. Uh, they much prefer to have their own product branded and be distinct. And of course, we have this continued sort of strategic confrontation between the United States and China and the rest of the world and China in many respects that we're seeing play out in the G7, the NATO, the US-EU summit, where 
the, the continued clash around the origin, the Wuhan, the coronavirus origins controversy. Do you see any any space at all for collaboration between between the West and China on this issue of vaccine allocations and with reference to low and middle income countries? Yeah, I would hope that there's room for collaboration, right? Because I don't think in in global health as a field and certainly in in pandemic response that you know, direct competition is unlikely to to get us very far. If we can get the most countries covered with effective and safe vaccines, that would be good for everyone. As you said, we have seen painted over the last week even more clear boundaries uh, between the West and China and the Biden administration, I think, has used G7, NATO, the EU summit, exactly like you said, to make clear that there are major differences in alternative points of view between China and the West, um, which perhaps makes it less likely that we're going to end up in a comfortable collaborative model. But there may be, at least by default, a, a bit of demarcation over areas of priority going forward. As you look out in the next couple of years with respect to vaccinating the world. What gives you the greatest hope and optimism? Yeah, to me, I think so long as we really can rely on science, which has gotten us this far, and the more we can ensure that we're following what the science tells us, we're going to end up in a good place. And I think we are starting to move more and more in that direction. So I, I remain optimistic that we're going to pick up the pace here uh, and save as many lives as we can. Thanks for all the work, all the work you do. Thanks for the leadership you showed in us getting these open letters out, which I think was quite important and wouldn't have been done without your initiative there. So thank you again for that. And thanks for spending the time with us today. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Steve, for all of the leadership uh, you've provided at CSIS and for this great collaboration over the past few weeks. We'll be back to you again soon to catch up. Okay. Looking forward to it. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.